Dude, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Good lord. How long has it been since we've been recording, man? Uh, I think it's been a couple of weeks. I know we took a holiday break, uh, like I hope most of us did. Um, and happy new year to everybody. Welcome, Trek Nation. If you're here avoiding the news, double welcome. We're like you. We want to think about a better world, so we're here to talk about Story Trek. I'm Marshall Hopkins. And I'm Michael Stratigakis. And this week, we are going to cover the most recent additions in the Trek universe and franchise. So here's your upfront spoiler alert. If you have not watched Star Trek Discovery Season 3, that is all we're talking about today. So take a moment, stop. Go and watch it. Look up CBS. Find Star Trek Discovery Season 3 and go and watch it. And then come back and listen to this podcast. This actually, I have to say, after now three seasons of Discovery, this was clearly the best season of Discovery. Easily. I I can just speak for myself. I'd say the first season had some moments and uh, gleams of hope that the show would improve and then the second season didn't quite deliver in the ways that i was hoping for but uh season three has turned a corner absolutely now i i i'm gonna kind of offer my own little um spiel here on season one and season two of discovery they were both kind of hit or miss for me i felt that there were some bright spots there were some really high points i can't say enough about Anson Mount's Captain Pike. I thought he was pitch perfect. Everything he did was just, you know, chef's kiss. But of course there were, I had some deep flaws with Star Trek Discovery season one and season two. We'll get into this in deeper detail. I know I I felt like I was watching a story I, I was watching a show titled Star Trek that felt more like Battlestar Galactica. And that's that's not necessarily a criticism. You know, I love Battlestar Galactica, but it wasn't Star Trek. It was a different beast altogether. And Discovery Season 3, I feel like, is the first one where I can say almost every single episode I watched has threads or connective tissue with all of the other Star Trek series and films that I've seen. And... That is just the best praise you're, you're, you know, when you're in the world and the franchise of the story. And just to, just to be clear here for everyone listening, in no way are we trying to be gatekeepers or anything like that. Like if any way in the, on this show that you feel like we've been a little bit too critical of the writing in some way or another, I, we respect your opinion. Just that at this moment, coming at it from our perspective myself and Marshall's, that this is the feelings and opinions and insights that we have gleaned from the show. And specifically, of course, today, season three. Absolutely. Please feel free to message us, tweet us, contact us. Let us know you disagree, but please make sure you know that we are not excluding anything from the Trek family. Um, so and, and we're hardly the people to if there are deciders, we're not the deciders of what is and isn't Trek or who doesn't get to participate or be a part of it. These are just our opinions of this feels more like or resembles the stories and, and, and themes that we're more familiar with in other Trek stories. And Marshall, something I was thinking about we could go into is maybe a little bit about the history of the writer's room and the traditions of Trek, or I should say the tendencies of Trek when it comes to season threes of shows, 
specifically comparing Discovery to, say, The Next Generation, the one thing you see in The Next Generation is it kicks off with Gene Roddenberry and a bunch of his cohorts that are from the original series, along with some new people. And for two seasons, the show doesn't quite get out from underneath the shadow of what had come before. And it wasn't until a season three where they brought in Michael Piller into the writer's room and he became the showrunner. Did the show start to turn the corner? I think a lot of people will even say there's that phrase, um, growing the beard. Right. The Riker beard. Yeah. The, the beard uh, shows some growth. It certainly did. Uh, but it really was season three for the next generation that really started to kick things off. And in fact, if you look over at all Trek series post the original series, all those series tend to turn a corner of some sort around the third season. So at this point, looking at it from the grand scheme of things, we're in season three now of Discovery. And we've had a lot of upheaval with the writer's room. It's no secret that Brian Fuller was the original co-creator of the show. And he departed before the show actually took off. And some new showrunners were brought in. And then sometime in the middle of doing season two, there was some sort of situation in the writer's room and those two showrunners departed and a new showrunner was brought in, Michelle Paradise, and she's the one who's been running Discovery ever since. And they've kind of honed their crew of writers. Now in season three, this is the first full season that they have mapped out themselves without looking the other over the shoulder to see if they're on the way out. Right. I, I would imagine that job security is very important towards the quality of writing. And it, it very much does feel like Michelle Paradise has been, you know, I, I won't, I'm not sure if I want to go to so far to do a comparison to Pillar exactly. Um, She's her own writer. She's her own producer. That said, it does feel like she has been a turning point in terms of, I I don't know if I could say it's consistency or if it is sort of a much closer hue to thematic threads, or maybe it's thematic consistency. Mm -hmm. Discovery has always had its own sort of feeling, its own beat, its own groove to it. I know that in some of the episodes of Ready Room, uh, and shout out to the Ready Room, I love watching it. Shout out to Will Whedon. That's it's a it's a great after show that doesn't just repeat all the things you've seen. It shows you new things. But there, in several episodes of the Ready Room, I think Jonathan Frakes has made a reference to uh, calling it emo trek, or it's very emotional trek, and. I think that that is one thing that has been a very key part of Discovery from minute one. As previous shows, you have many moments where even the captain says, listen, tamp down your feelings and do your job. That doesn't really happen on the Discovery. Your feelings are important. And so there's a lot of focus on the emotion of these characters. That's always been the trend in season one and season two. In season three, I feel like we get a lot more consistency and cohesiveness in where we're going with the emotions of these characters and why we're going there. And we may like or dislike the approach or their, their their execution of it. But at the same time, there's finally a consistency, uh, a consistent feeling throughout the season. And I think that that has probably been the biggest game changer. To me, I would say looking at season three exclusively, uh, there were some really solid themes this season overall. Like when you look at it as a whole, like the, it was 13 episodes, 12 episodes. What did we have? 13 episodes. 13 episodes. 13 episodes overall. I have to say that thematically, this season works 
so much better than the past two seasons. There's still issues that we'll get into later, but I just really wanted to, to step out here and say something about the fact that they came out this season in this moment in time in history uh, and did a season about the connectedness of people. And it manifested itself in so many different ways, whether it was the relationship between Burnham and Booker or Adira and their symbiote or its discovery in Starfleet. You know, there's all these different ways that these people are connected and we're seeing issues with connectivity. Stamets and Kolberg, they're building a family. Or in between all those things, you really get a sense that this is a show that understands that they may have been pushed thousand years into the future. They are a fragmented crew at the beginning. And in many ways, everybody in this show for the entire season is trying to find a way to connect. And we'll get into more of the details of some of those in specific episodes in a little bit. And on top of that, in so many different ways, they actually dealt with the thematics of visibility. Obviously, there's Grey and Adira. That's, that's the very clear, that's the one that it's very obvious that they did this season. Dealing with you know, the denialism and confronting what's behind the door, like in the last few episodes of the season with Sukal and Burr right. and the dealing with what's behind the door. And I don't want to go to what's behind the door. I don't want to know the truth and denial of reality, denial of being able to see. And it contrasts so lovely with the other storylines that they have going throughout the season. And in those ways, on those thematics, high five. You guys nailed it on those thematic levels for me. To anybody listening from the uh, Discovery Writers Room, there are other things that um, I also have to say that were interesting to me was that we saw traditional characters in Star Trek for once in a long time, i.e. the Admiral, who wasn't this nefarious character. Marshall, I think at one point you and I were talking this season and you're like, Oh, this that admiral's going to turn out to be a bad guy. That admiral's going to turn out to be a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I completely. And again, that's that's you know that maybe I don't know if it's project not projecting, but that's theorizing based upon the previous Trek shows we've seen. There have been so many insane admirals or corrupt admirals that it just felt like uh, uh, you know. It just felt like an obvious misdirect. Admiral Vance is a great guy. When I first saw him the entire time, I was like, he's got to be evil. But there are so many admirals and captains in Star Trek that go bad. It's it's such a tradition in such a way that for a season where, you know, we have David Cronenberg's character, which I have to say is as far as a mystery and an enigma that's not answered. And I'm kind of happy that it's not answered. David Cronenberg's character there is one of my favorite things from season three. The fact that we don't know really anything about him. It's only what we've seen. And then we just have glimpses that he knows stuff that's beyond what most people would know. I love it when writing gives you a mystery and actually makes it intriguing and one you want to solve, but also one you don't want to solve because enjoying the mysteries too great. And that's David Cronenberg's character. I think in the last episode, we see him reappear after not having seen him for a while. And he's advising and talking to the head of Starfleet. Well, well, who is this guy to be talking to the head of all Starfleet? What authority does he actually have? What is he in charge of? They never tell you. And honestly, I'm pretty happy with that. People are speculating as to what he is and what his role is, but no one feels as if that's something that has to be answered at this moment. 
And it's great. It's great to have those things. And speaking of things that are unanswered and have been unanswered, I mean, come on. Finally, 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 the writers put Burnham in the captain's chair. It's about time. It was quite a ride to get there this season. It was an emotional roller coaster in some ways. But really, this is where she should have been. And I I would dare say that I know that they try to go out there in the beginning of Discovery in season one. And we're going to do a show and the captain's not going to be the main character of the show. The first officer or science officer is going to be the, the lead of the show. And, that, and that's an interesting take. But the more and more that the show went on, things centered around... The first officer, the second officer, science officer, uh, up and down. And Specialist. Specialists. Specialists. Uh, all these different roles that Burnham held over three seasons. The more that they did that, the more it became obvious that – now, I know some people would say, well, you know, it shows that she earned it. I, my feeling is it's like if you're going to do a show and it's going to be focused on a, on a primary character really intensely to the fact that they're the cause of the Klingon war – they're also the solution to the Klingon war. They're the cause of the appearance of the Red Angel. They're a solution to the to the control in the Red Angel. And now, all of a sudden, there's the thing called the burn. And now in season three, we're going, burn, burn them. Oh, no. Is this going to happen again? Right. Is this going to be that same thread line again? And to their credit, the writers didn't go there this season with that. And they took a unique and fascinating surprise answer to what caused the burn, not really involving Burnham. And quite frankly, that was a boon to my ability to continue to watch the show. We both discussed all season how we said with fingers crossed, please don't let it be named the burn for Burnham. Please don't let Burnham be the cause of the burn, please. Thankfully, the they heard us. And at a certain point, you're right. Like everything needed to revolve around Burnham just to involve her in the show. It felt like at certain points just to have her be the focus of the character, which means all of the universe has to be centered upon her. And that's a problem when you have a main character. I feel like it's the same problem you have with Blofeld as James Bond's brother. Like the entire universe that is in the story does not need to revolve around one character. We can just follow this one character through the universe. That's kind of always been the thing with Star Trek. You know, uh, Jean-Luc Picard wasn't the center of the universe. He was just a random human who Q picked to defend the, you know, defend humanity. There was never anything particularly special about the captains of the Enterprise or various other ships other than they were the right person at the right time. Not your, your father's mother's uncle's brothers had a destiny, you know, that sort of a thing. That was one issue that I had with Discovery early on going into it and very grateful to see that they finally put Burnham in the captain's chair. They finally dispensed with, I'd also like to take just a quick aside, just to take issue with one point, And it's this, I think that Burnham is the only captain we've ever seen who had to earn the seat for several seasons. Uh, I know that this is not the fault of anybody works on Discovery Season 3, anything like that. I just think out loud and question the optics of the black woman had to earn it to prove that she should sit there. But that's neither here nor there now. She finally does sit in the seat. You know, that's a great point there. And uh, I kind of felt the same thing. The other thing I thought though, is this. Alice Kurtzman, who is the, I guess, granddaddy showrunner, I don't know what his exact title is, the keeper of all things right. Star Trek, was one of the writers on Star Trek 2009. And I recall at one point him and Bob Orsi, his writing partner in the film, spoke about one of the feedback 
notes that they got from fans and from critics on the film was that Kirk got into the captain's chair really quickly and really easily. And they started to try to backpedal a little bit from that in, into darkness. And so I'm wondering if having Kurtzman in that position, he maybe overreacted to the situation with, that they had with Kirk in the movies. I could see that, especially considering the criticism, as you just mentioned. In Star Trek 2009, yeah, in all Star Trek canon and lore, there is no way anyone would be promoted that quickly to that position in any circumstance. We can have a whole separate podcast about the J.J. Abrams films. <laughs> but, <laughs> and we may and we may well do that. Well, I was just going to add that. So, you know, Kirk was, the perception you got was sort of this frat boy who failed upward. And so there's definitely going to be a pushback to that as a writer and you're going to say, oh goodness, I've got to show that this character really earned their stripes. So as I say, I don't think that there's any intentional transgressions going on there, but I, I do just have to question the optics of that, you know, in hindsight. Oh uh, yeah, and in, in fact, it, it's magnified to me at least because even though Cisco was the de facto number one of the show in Deep Space Nine, even though he was the commander of Deep Space Nine and had practically all the authority of a captain, they don't make him captain until, what, third season, fourth season? He has all the responsibilities, he has all the presence of a captain, but for some reason, he's denied a captaincy and he's left as a commander. Now, yes, I know some people would say semantics of the fact that a lot of times when you see a space station and there's somebody running the space station in Starfleet, they're usually commanders and they're not captains. I get that. But looking at it from the optics perspective that uh, you pointed out, it's kind of interesting that the two times we've had characters who have eventually become captain, they've both been – it's been a black man and a black woman. Yeah. That's <laughs> – why do they have to like go through a process of earning it? <laughs> Very good question. And I want to stress again that we're not making any accusations against any of the producers or writers or anything like that. Any transgressions that may exist are – purely coincidental to our knowledge. It's just that, you know, again, looking at it as observers, you have to look at the, the optics of this. Kirk, Picard, Janeway, all immediately accepted as authorities from first episode, minute one. Archer, all accepted as authorities from minute one. But with, again, Cisco, and just a fact check here, Cisco was made captain in the third season finale of Deep Space Nine, an episode called The Adversary. So it was the end of the third season where Cisco becomes captain, the very last episode, and it's the very last episode of the third season of Discovery where Michael Burnham becomes captain. Yeah. I often wonder if Discovery and I would say venture to say Picard and even Lower Decks, perhaps Strange New Worlds, we'll see, that all these new Star Trek series are really part of an era of television that's really rooted in nostalgia. If you look at it, the next generation era, the 90s, early 2000s, there's a postmodernism about it since it's in the way that it's revising what we had seen before in the 1960s Trek. And now that we get to the new era, it's not inventing itself all anew. It's drawing upon the nostalgia, just like, you know, Force Awakens did and basically regurgitating the plot for A New Hope in Star Wars. Right. Uh, there's this nostalgia bent in all of our content today and in, in our, our mainstream content. 
And it permeates all the shows. And as much as there's sort of looking at the past to kind of determine the future of a show, it, it kind of strikes me odd that it feels like some of the choices that are being made to call in the nostalgia are choices that are being made oftentimes that feel like someone looked it up on memory alpha or something like that and didn't quite understand the context to what they were referencing or how it fit into the grand scheme of things. There's something lost there in in the context. I, I also wonder if there's little details like, you know, they've done this thing before where we had a lead who became the captain at the end of the third season. Right. So you're, you're, you're wondering if maybe that isn't a, sort of a nostalgia callback, a, a sort of an Easter egg, as you know, we, we've seen throughout the show. One really big one that I'm sure every Trekker on the Internet talked about at some point we'll talk about. And I, I'm sure as we talk about that moment, we're going to discuss how, yeah, it's there. It may be cool to see it again, but what does it mean? Like, what's the meaning of it being there in terms of story or even the historical context of of what that original episode, City on the Edge of Forever, meant? Is it just an Easter egg that's here to say, hey, remember this? Or is there some other or deeper meaning for it being there? We can go way into detail on that, I'm sure. One other thing I was going to talk, talk about in a specific that I've been kicking around a moniker for also specifically with discovery, the term I've come up with the label I've put on it is I'm not meaning this as necessarily any sort of disparagement as much as I am trying to understand how the writing comes across to me. But a lot of discovery comes off to me as feeling like it's theme park. Like I call it theme park Trek. And by this, what I mean is, it's hitting all like on the nostalgia points. It's hitting all these base points, all these things, all these visual clues, verbal cues, sound clues that we come to know as being in the world of Star Trek. But it doesn't seem to be getting into the subtlety of some of the stuff. One of the things that I constantly harken back to is we seldom see what these characters do with their spare time when they're not running around the ship. Now, we got a little bit about Stamets and his interest in classical music and opera. We learned a little bit about Gray and playing, I believe, the violin. But that was in a very much a serving the story, the main story plot line. It wasn't really there to develop a character or a relationship of one of the primary characters. Like, I'm looking directly at Michael Burnham. I'm not really sure what Michael Burnham does except run around and try to change things and save the world. We, right. we do know there, there is an example of Michael Burnham very early on in Star Trek, and that's James T. Kirk. It's the same type of personality. They're defying the orders. They're bucking authority. Burnham is from the same era as James T. Kirk in, in, Feder- in Starfleet history, technically. So that could play into things a little bit. So it's a little bit more, you know, as Spock calls it in Star Trek VI and in Unification Part Two, cowboy diplomacy. But the thing that strikes me about it is we have and like a theme park ride it shows you all the visual clues but a lot of times what seems to be missing is a compelling actual story that you follow in each episode now the themes of the show this season have been fantastic i can't disagree with the themes i think it's more about the execution of the themes 
for me and how they relate to the stories themselves, because that's where it seemed to, to really go off the rails. And we can talk about specific episodes in a minute. The thing about it is this show has had three seasons now to really get into the groove of what the show is. And granted, it is emo. It's a different vibe. It's a different feel. There are so many things that have been up in the air on the show. We've just changed uniforms now on the show. We'll see what happens with that. But I really have to ask, what is the, what is the importance to the story in having scenes talking about What's your catchphrase, Captain? I, it's a it's a fan <laughs> thing. I get it. Like fans like captains with a catchphrase, and it's like, oh, hey, Sonequa, let's fly. You know, Patrick Stewart, make it so. You know, I, I get it. Fans want to like have that thing that they that phrase they associate with uh, with characters. I get it. I don't know if the show needs to necessarily go out of its way to make that happen. It, it seemed like that was way too much in the fan service thing. And that's what I say when I say theme park in that theme parks are designed to please the audience and give them that feeling of, yes, this is tied to something that you love. And we're going to go all, we're going to pull all the stops to appease your fandom of said property. In this case, there are moments of discovery that genuinely feel like they're completely fan service and they don't really, for me, work as far as story points. And I would much rather prefer that, you know, if Burnham says, let's fly, it wasn't built up. I'd rather that she just says it at the end of the season and that's it. And then the fans go, oh, that's her phrase. As opposed to Saru has a conversation with Tilly. Let's figure out what my catchphrase is. And if the fans respond to it, the fans respond to it. It doesn't need, for me, it doesn't need that that extra emphasis to it. And there's some other things too, but, um, and as a small side note, the other thing that was a little bit confusing from a story perspective is understanding and, and, and discovery makes me really have to think about this many times over throughout the show. I don't know the difference in discovery between the Federation and Starfleet. A lot of times I, it always seemed to be very clear to me. Mm. And now for the first time, I'm not sure what that distinction is but to 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 clue in on what you were talking about i agree with you my biggest issues with discovery is more the execution of how they pull things off this season like a lot of their choices were great but again i didn't need a moment where saru says what should my catchphrase be because all we've known of star trek captains and admirals and things like that they have more important stuff to deal with than thinking about what will i say that will impress everybody on the bridge they're professionals. They don't worry about that. That's a thing that they say that you get this idea that it's a little bit of panache on their part. I mean, I, I don't recall if I don't recall Cisco having a catchphrase. Nah, he don't. He doesn't need a catchphrase. I, He's a badass. I, he did, <laughs> exactly. You didn't catch. Cisco didn't need a catchphrase for you to do what he told you to do. You just did what he told you to do, or else you were cursed out. Yeah, he tear you limb to limb. Uh, to the point that even Worf <laughs> in canon on the show was intimidated by him. So, and Worf, of course, is the most badass of badass Klingon warriors. So you can have strength of character without needing a catchphrase. And the reason why that moment stuck out to me, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is because Saru always seemed like a person who, yes, he's always been concerned about his performance as a captain, but he's never been concerned about superficial things like that. His duty to his ship was always most important. 
And since we had already had the episode where he's working on building morale, that seems superfluous and unnecessary. And there's so many better comedy moments that you could have had between Saru and Tilly that would have actually told us something about the characters. Like when they're not on duty, we have no idea what they do. Almost every single character in every other Star Trek show, we had some idea of their life outside of the dramatic events that were going on. We knew that Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien, Miles O'Brien and Deep Space Nine, they would go to the Hollow Suite and they would pl- uh, uh, act out adventures. Janeway would go and visit Leonardo da Vinci. What does Burnham do for fun? What do any of them do for fun? We have no idea. So when I talk about failures in execution, that's mainly what I'm going to be talking about and what my issues are going to be, where it's like you had so many opportunities to rather than go for a much easier, quicker, here's a joke. You could have used that opportunity to both tell a joke and give us character. I'd love to see them play these moments of the sort of the side note of their of what's going on. I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the episode Data's Day, and the whole episode is like the backside of all these characters. Jordy gets a haircut. Data put picks out gifts for O'Brien and Keiko's wedding. It learns to dance with Dr. Crusher, who we learn was a dance instructor or dance choreographer. And there's all these little things that had so much flavor to these characters and to the performances that inform the actors. And I feel like we're missing a lot of those moments with this show. And I, I, I really hope that season four, just stepping ahead of that, they really start to take a look at that. Now, if you look at the original series, Star Trek, there's a little bit of this stuff. We get the moments, we get glimpses of it. It's also 1960s television, 1980s television. It kind of carried over as well. It wasn't until again, season three of the narration that they brought in Michael Piller and the choice was made that we're going to focus on character. We're going to focus on character. We're going to focus on character. And he would work, as I understand it, really, really hard with his writing team, his staff to make these episodes super, super tight. And then they would actually come in under the number of pages that they would need to film for an episode. And then in order to fill those pages, Pillar would resort and being a showrunner, either himself or one of the writers to do what they named Pillar Filler. And Pillar Filler was nothing more than filling the pages with background information and character insight. That's what all that was for. They wrote the stories super tight and then they filled it all the rest of the spots of the show in with character, character growth, character development, character insight. And I really, I'd love to see Discovery take a crack at that. Just take a crack at it. I think you've got some amazing actors on the show talking to the writers, I suppose. You've got some amazing actors you guys are working with and let's see them fly. You know, thinking just about that, there's one character, there's an actor on the show who plays crewman Reese on the bridge crew. His name is Patrick Kwok Chun. If I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. And I apologize if I haven't, he is a black belt in Krav Maga proficient in Taekwondo and Muay Thai. And all I could think about, Once I looked that up in his bio, I was like, if you recall an episode of The Next Generation where Commander Riker's father visits and they've had this lifelong rivalry and they settled their dispute in this absolutely ridiculous looking martial arts moment where both of them are supposed to be blinded and fighting with these sticks. And I'm thinking to myself, you have so many opportunities here to use the skills your actors already bring to bear to flesh both the characters out and then add to the universe. 
And again, that's just another example of you have great actors there. They have backgrounds in so many interesting things. They have so many different talents. Let them bring those talents to the forefront, just the way Gates McFadden was able to bring her uh, her past as a, as a dance choreographer. It didn't save the day. You know, it wasn't ever, I think, used or mentioned in anything but that episode. But it added so much depth to the character of Dr. Crusher that we now know something interesting about her. We now know something that she might be doing when she's not in sickbay. I, I can't tell you what crewman Reese or really anybody in Discovery does when they're not in sickbay. I can assume that Cleveland Booker feeds his cat, but apart from, you know, I can assume that Stamets probably reads technical manuals and listens to opera. But apart from that, I know nothing about them. So we should get into each episode and and talking about our strengths, our weaknesses, and our loves and what we didn't like about them. Oh, by the way, one quick side note, since I don't think we'll ever talk about the Icarus Factor next generation ever again. (laughs) What's up with this fighting system that looks like a cross between a mock time and Jedi training in A New Hope with Luke and Obi-Wan with a blast shield? I would love to talk to someone. It it can be a stunt coordinator. It can be a costume designer. It can be an assistant director, DP, whomever. I just want to talk to somebody who thought yeah. about that and who watched that happening on that set that day and asked them, did it ever, did you ever think, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> it, it, it's not one of the most, it's not one of the weirdest moments, but it certainly is a head scratcher. So that was, it was all very rewarding to me. Uh, and I think that they learned a lot of lessons from previous seasons with the show by the finale. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, actually talk symbolism of connectivity. Discovery is finally accepted as part of the 32nd century when they get those contemporary uniforms. So the thing about the whole season really was exemplified to me with the connection between Saru and Sakal. Saru, when beaming down to this planet, the computer on the planet, the holographic projection system, made Saru appear to be human rather than Kelpian. Now, Sakal is Kelpian. So Sakal is sitting there, or connecting with Saru, not really connecting with Saru, because Sakal believes that Saru is uh, artificial, that he's a holographic projection, and on top of it, he's human. It's interesting because it's not a per- it's not a perfect metaphor, but it seemed to speak to the divisiveness to me in America, and how while we may not look like each other, there are intrinsic things that connect us and can help us be better. And Saru is really set there as a guide to help Sakal deal with his fears and difficulties, and is able to connect on a cultural level with Sakal, who trusts Saru because of that. It's not because of the outward appearance. Oh, you look different than me. It's the inward thing. It's finding the things inside that connects and binds people. And that's what Saru connected with Sakal with. It wasn't like, oh, you're Kelpian. I'm Kelpian. Therefore, I trust you. It was Saru had to do other things. And it turned out, in this case, it's speaking to the the connected cultural identity. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, now just to backtrack a little bit and talk about for one quick second, there is a tide. I don't have much to say about it other than to call it die hard with a burnum. Um, <laughs> because that, I mean, it's basically, that's it. It's die hard with Michael Burnham. That hope is you part two really fulfilled 
a lot of what the season had been starting. Uh, you touched upon the themes of the show, uh, of the season, how it's all about connectedness and how we see that connectedness, how that connection can happen despite differences of appearance because nobody that Sukal saw looked like him. As a matter of fact, it would have disturbed him more if he saw someone who looked like him. That would have really jarred him. So it was great that you got this opportunity to see Saru make this connection with him completely separate of the main connection that they have. He got the opportunity to build trust based upon his differences first and not upon his similarities. And that was really Star Trek to me. I felt that this episode delivered. It smoothed out the rough parts. It brought everything home. Um, I love the uniforms. You can finally tell who is what rank. My only criticism with them, I'd love to see a belt there. I don't know why everything has to be loose and flowing, but that's just that's just me. I'm used to the monster maroon with the really big belt across the midsection. Um but no, I felt like that the season finale helped make it, it cemented it in the Trek orb, so to speak. Um, it made sure that you knew this is Star Trek. The issues that were there, yes, you have to use violence sometimes to resolve them, but that's only as a last resort. We even also got some of these very interesting discussions about capitalism in the Federation, um, in the negotiations between Admiral Vance and Osira. I, I thought that that was very interesting. I know that we've talked online about how a lot of science fiction today fails to be audacious enough to make a real-world parallel, which is something that Star Trek is famous for. So I can respect at the very least that they made the attempt to have some sort of real-world parallel conversation about, well, yeah, socialism is great, and so is capitalism. It has these benefits, and how our ideals, whether it's a socialistic ideal or that sort of a thing, becomes a whole lot different when you have resource scarcity, you know, it's easy to, 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 to be a socialist when there's an abundance of resources. It's a lot harder when you have a lot of people who are vying and scrapping and clawing for those resources. Now, I'm not making an argument for one ideology or the other. I'm just saying it's great that Star Trek got to discuss it. it it's way overdue. I feel like what we've been missing in Star Trek, we Star Trek fans, the people who love the show, a part of what we loved about it, it wasn't just spaceships and lasers. It was about how do we discuss who human beings are now using this veil of it's science fiction so you don't have to get offended or you don't have to be insulted or upset. And this is the Star Trek that really took that and took it to a further place, even to that final moment where, again, you have a black woman. Not just a black woman, but a black woman with braids, with, with hair that is familiar to black culture, sitting in a captain's chair, everyone looking to her, saying, you're in charge now. That's an incredible moment. Like, we know in Star Trek canon that Martin Luther King watched the show and com uh, inspired Nichelle Nichols to stay on. We know that Nichelle Nichols, as a whore on Star Trek, inspired one of the first black astronauts, Dr. Mae Jemison. So we know that these things have through lines. And so a part of the excitement of seeing that moment where Michael Burnham is finally seated in the chair, literally what passed through my mind is, I wonder how many more black female scientists we get out of this. 
How many more black female NASA experts and astronauts and mathematicians do we get out of seeing that woman sit in that captain's chair? I can't wait for that. And that is how Star Trek is supposed to make you feel. And it was really nice they added that little Roddenberry quote at the end. It really kind of connected everything together. And there's a lot of people out there, a lot of these gatekeeper types that are saying, oh, Discovery's not Star Trek. And I'm like, no, it's not the Star Trek you grew up with. I get it. It's different. And there's a lot of things that have changed in our culture and our society. And Star Trek has adjusted to it. But it's still maintained itself. And it's gone through, uh, you know, kind of like Michael Burnham. This show has literally gone up and down. <laughs> you know, it's right. like... Back and forth, reduced in rank, up ahead. You know, it's like the same thing has happened with the writing on the show. And I, I'd like to think that at this point, the show is starting to put aside all the legacy of mistakes that it made for two seasons and slowly clawed its way out throughout season three. And, and I'm very hopeful for what season four comes to bear with Discovery. And I'm looking forward to that, just as I'm looking forward to the other Trek series whenever they come out as well. I, I can't wait. I'm personally excited. Discovery season four, to the writers, to the cast, to the crew, to everybody involved. Thank you for bringing us some more great Star Trek. Thank you for reconnecting us to Star Trek. Thank you to everybody listening. This is the uh, first time we've ever done a season recap, so this is a little bit new for us. That said, thanks for listening. And of course, if you want to follow us, we have our Twitter handle at story underscore Trek. And of course, I'm Michael Sturdygakis. I'm Marshall Hopkins. And live long and prosper, folks. That sounds like a good out to me. 